So this is the second um, slide deck in our illustrious series on the current topics in pediatric kidney transplantation. This uh, presentation will specifically cover the transplant uh, itself and the post-operative uh, phase of care. So there are many surgical considerations that need to be taken when planning a pediatric kidney transplantation. The first and often most important of these considerations is to the size of both the graft and the recipient. In general, specifically in living donor transplantation, um, but often in deceased donor transplantation, adult allografts are used, making creatinine a difficult number to interpret in pediatric uh, kidneys as the um, high GFR associated with those adult grafts uh, will often mask uh, any type of graft dysfunction um, that would uh, typically um, be noticeable by an elevated creatinine. In general, although there's many uh, specific surgeons who would not follow this rule, uh, recipients who are over 20 kilograms will have a extra peritoneal graft placed, whereas if they are less than 20 kilograms, the graft would be placed intraperitoneally. And the following slide will illustrate these two approaches. But other important surgical considerations are if native nephrectomy should be performed, um, or in patients who have bladder issues, um, if stents should be placed or if bladders should be augmented before, during, or after transplantation. So as stated in the previous slide, there are two main um, ways to, um, or approaches to transplanting a kidney in a recipient. The first of these is most common and is specifically more common in patients who are above 20 kilograms um, and is uh, termed the extraperitoneal approach. It's called extraperitoneum because the peritoneum itself is actually never violated during the procedure. Instead, a right lower quadrant, typically um, less commonly a left lower quadrant, Gibson incision is made, and the peritoneum is swept medially along with the intra-abdominal viscera, revealing the retroperitoneum. In the retroperitoneum, the common and external iliac arteries can be found, as well as um, their, uh, the common and uh, external iliac veins. Um, the anastomoses are to the external or common iliac vein and the um, uh, and artery. Last part of the procedure, the bladder is typically insufflated with some type of fluid um, and <clears throat> an anastomosis between the ure ureter and the bladder is formed, which is called a neo-ureteroacystostomy. In the intraperitoneal approach, which is typically performed on smaller children, <clears throat> the peritoneum is, uh, is uh, entered, and the uh, right colon is medialized, uh, revealing the retroperitoneum. Here you can find the aorta and vena cava, and the arterial anastomosis can neither be performed to the distal aorta or the common iliac artery, whereas the venous anastomosis is typically performed to the distal vena cava. Again, the ureter is anastomosed to the bladder, um, an anastomosis that, again, is called a neo-ureterosystostomy. 
This slide uh, represents the phases of the immune response and the process of T-cell reaction, uh, T-cell um, activation in response to an antigen presenting cells presentation of a foreign antigen. As you can see in signal one, the foreign antigen indicated as a red dot is presented in the context of self, where self is an MHC or HLA peptide. The T cell receptor in signal one recognizes this response. Then there is a signal two or co-stimulatory response between CD28 on the T cell and CD80 on the antigen presenting cell. Once these two signals have happened, there is downstream activation of calcineurin, MAP kinases, and other intracellular proteins that have the downstream effect of leading to transcription of many different um, um, mRNA and subsequently protein um, um, particles. The uh, most important, um, the most important product of this transcription is interleukin-2, which is secreted from the T-cell and serves to recruit uh, further T-cells to the site of inflammation. Uh, interleukin-2 uh, will bind on uh, a different T-cell to the CD25 receptor. This um, is termed signal three. And through this pathway, um, T cells will continue to replicate through the cell cycle um, and uh, cause an immune response. The mainstay of immunosuppressive management is designed to decrease this signal cascade response, um, which naturally would cause the recipient to attack the donor organ. And there are various different points uh, where the different drugs that are used act um, throughout these various pathways in order to inhibit that response. So immediately post-transplant, we're in what we call the induction phase, um, which is when we want the strongest level of immunosuppression. Um, and in the OR, patients will typically receive one of two induction agents, uh, specifically thymoglobulin, which is anti-T-cell antibody, and that is actually cytotoxic and will deplete the body of T-cells. Um, or when we don't want such a severe degree of immunosuppression, um, the anti-CD25 antibody Simulect, uh, which acts at the IL-2 receptor, can be used to help block um, that point of the signal cascade. In addition to those two medications, the mainstays of long-term immunosuppressive therapy, which will be started in the immediate period and then continued lifelong, um, include the calcineurin inhibitors, uh, specifically tacrolimus, as well as uh, Celsept, which is an anti-metabolite. Which acts to stop the cell cycle. This is a slide that complements uh, the previous slide. But I'd like to draw your attention to this, the following drugs. The first is tacrolimus, which is um, um, actually a macrolide antibiotic. And again, this inhibits calcineurin um, uh, 
from um, working and therefore stops the process of T cell activation. The main toxicities of tacrolimus uh, include uh, hyperlipidemia, hypertension, diabetes mellitus, which in the postoperative setting is called de novo onset of diabetes after transplantation or NODAT, um, gingival hyperplasia, uh, and hirsutism. Another important agent uh, is the next one or um, listed, which is sirolimus. Uh, again, a macrolide antibiotic, but this one inhibits um, mTOR, um, um, which is um, the mammalian target of rapamycin. Um, this uh, drug inhibits the IL-2-driven um, T-cell uh, proliferative response, um, and it, uh, its main um, uh, toxicities are thrombocytopenia, uh, delayed wound healing, which prevents its use in the postoperative phase, um, aphthous ulcers, which can be quite severe, uh, interstitial lung disease and pneumonitis, um, and uh, hyperlipidemia. Commonly used uh, agents um, also include uh, mycophenolate mofetil, um, which again inhibits um, the, uh, the purine synthesis in lymphocytes and therefore uh, prevents their proliferation. Um, the main symptoms of uh, mycophenolate are gastrointestinal and include diarrhea, nausea, and vomiting. However, they can also cause neutropenia and anemia. And in the setting of infection in a transplant patient, it's important to stop these medications immediately. Um, the other medications listed are um, more uh, um, in, in uh, current trials now and are not uh, mainstays in uh, current immunosuppressive regimens. The last drug that should be uh, discussed uh, is steroids, and we will discuss this subsequently. So this slide uh, illustrates uh, the use of steroids um, and their p potential drawbacks uh, in the typical immunosuppressive regimen. So um, you can see, uh, so this was a study in the, in the Lancet, which was a randomized study um, that uh, randomized patients to three arms. Arm A, which included uh, the typical induction immunosuppressive agent basiliximab, plus a regimen including steroids. Arm B was a treatment arm that looked at basiliximab plus a rapid steroid withdrawal in the immediate postoperative period. And arm C looked at thymoglobulin, or a more potent uh, induction immunosuppressive agent, plus the same rapid steroid withdrawal. And what you can see is that at baseline, there was no difference in the incidence of diabetes among patients. But as you go out after month two, um, there was a difference in uh, hemoglobin A1C, and at 12 months, um, the diagnosis of post-transplant diabetes was, was significantly more infrequent in patients who had a rapid steroid withdrawal. Other differences 
significant differences other than the development of diabetes in patients who are withdrawn from steroids include higher levels of HDL cholesterol, less osteoporosis, um, decreased elevations in blood pressure, and improved uh, and an improved growth benefit in prepubescent patients. This is more data from the Harmony trial, which demonstrates that in the arms, there was no significant difference in the probability of biopsy-proven acute rejection or the probability of allograft survival. Further, there was no difference in the uh, development of uh, primary glomerulonephritis in the allograft, which is frequently cited as a reason to not withdraw patients from steroids. This graph is taken from the most recent annual report um, from the North American Pediatric Renal Trials Collaborative Study, NAPRATIX, and this looks at the various post-transplant immunosuppressive regimens that have been used over time, comparing three different transplant eras, uh, first from 1996 to 2001, and the most recent from 2008 to 2013. And what you can see here is that um, in the current era, the majority of centers are doing uh, a triple therapy regimen still um, centered on Prograf, which is tacrolimus, Celsept, which is MMF, mycophenolate mofetil, and prednisone. However, there is an increasing percentage of patients who are on uh, dual therapy with tacrolimus and MMF without steroids, and that's gone up from 2.7% of patients um, in the 1996 to 2001 era to 22.5% of patients. Um, in the most recent era. So this just goes to show uh, where we are in the development of post-transplant immunosuppressive protocols and it's definitely still a work in progress and a very active area of research. This slide um, is just to reiterate some of the potential side effects that were covered in more detail previously. Um, but in general, what we're most worried about is the um, suppressed immune system and an effect that that has on an increased risk of infection. And that's always the balance that we're trying to strike between preventing infection and preventing transplant rejection. Um, in addition to risks of increased infections because of immune suppression, there are also potential neurologic effects, risk of diabetes, specifically with uh, the calcineurin inhibitors, as we mentioned. Uh, Unfortunately, there is evidence that many of these medications can cause injury to the transplant kidney, particularly when drug levels are high, as seen with calcineurin inhibitors. Uh, for this reason, we do frequent drug level monitoring. There are increased risk of cancers, specifically skin cancers and lymphomas. Um, GI side effects, that's primarily seen with uh, mycophenolate. Um, and of course, allergic reactions and drug-drug interactions as well. So getting out of the immediate post-transplant period, um, looking a little more at post-transplant complications, uh, we first need to discuss the early perioperative transplant complications, specifically surgical complications and delayed graft function. Beyond the immediate transplant period, we worry about rejection, 
infection, and then chronic allograft dysfunction. Um, things that we always mention to our pediatric patients is that in many cases there is a possibility of the underlying disease to return, specifically, most importantly, with FSGS, in which uh, recurrence rates have been reported of upwards of 50%, um, but also happening with lupus and other autoimmune diseases and vasculitis. Um, and as a result of all of these things, uh, it's very common that patients will require a second kidney transplant later in life. Um, currently, the average transplant lifespan is somewhere between 12 to 15 years, uh, which would mean that patients who receive transplants in the pediatric period are almost guaranteed to need another transplant later on. So some of the most common surgical complications after transplant include uh, bleeding, uh, which is certainly the most common and sometimes requires uh, reoperation to evacuate hematoma and control of bleeding uh, focus. Um, problems are also notorious at the, at the ureteral anastomosis. Early on, uh, problems can be leaks, and later on uh, can be urinary obstruction. In the early setting, these uh, ureter problems are usually attributed to uh, a technical problem, whereas um, later on, um, after about two weeks, uh, urine leaks or ureteral stricture uh, occur because of ureteral ischemia. Uh, fluid collections uh, commonly occur. Um, and uh, most often are indolent. Um, however, a fluid collection uh, could be a urinoma in the setting of urine leak or uh, a lymphocele in the setting of a lymphatic leak. Um, as we already discussed, there's a significant uh, risk of bleeding post-kidney uh, transplant, um, but another risk is of a stenosis forming at the renal artery specifically. Renal arterial stenoses, uh, again, early on, um, are associated with a technical problem. Um, the uh, manifestations of renal artery stenosis can include um, uncontrollable uh, hypertension and perhaps the development of pulmonary edema. Uh, these are usually diagnosed on ultrasound um, and uh, can be fixed either with the assistance of interventional radiology or in rare circumstances, uh, reoperation. Um, there's also a risk of wound infection, um, which uh, is usually manageable with antibiotics, however, sometimes requires the assistance of interventional radiology to uh, drain subcutaneous abscesses. Um, DVTs are frequent, uh, and patients um, need to wear uh, SCDs in the post-transplant setting, and we also have our patients frequently ambulating. Uh, there is a lot of controversy as to the routine use of heparin uh, for DVT prophylaxis, as post-transplant the risk of <clears throat> bleeding is quite high. Um, the kidney gets placed retroperitoneally, um, where there are, are uh, a plethora of uh, somatic nerves that can be injured. Um, um, however, this is relatively rare, and minor dysesthesias will usually correct themselves after a few months from transplant. Perhaps the biggest uh, concern is the development of a graft thrombosis post-transplant. Most of the time, graft thromboses occur first in the renal vein, 
unfortunately, <clears throat> it is very hard to salvage a graft um, after a thrombosis. And in general, the thrombosis needs to be detected in the uh, recovery room to have any hope of graft salvage. If grafts thrombose after that, uh, most often uh, they need to be nephrectomized. Moving on from the surgical complications, um, from the time of transplant and onwards, one of the major risks that need um, long-term monitoring is for infection. Uh, the most common infection after a kidney transplant is a urinary tract infection. Um, and this is due to multiple factors. Um, primarily, well, first of all, um, it's related to the immunosuppressed, immunocompromised status post-transplant due to medications. Um, in addition, there are many patients who have bladder abnormalities as their cause of renal failure. For instance, um, neurogenic bladder and posterior, posterior urethral valves. In these patients, uh, they may have had recurrent UTIs prior to transplant as well um, and may be colonized with bacteria, which then become more significant and more rampant in the immunocompromised state. Uh, in addition, in the immediate post-transplant period, in patients who have had stents placed, uh, there is now a conduit for urinary reflux to travel from the bladder up to the transplant kidney which increases the risk of UTIs during that time period. Um, in addition to the risk of UTIs, there is also risk of other opportunistic infections, such as PCP, uh, for which we prophylax with Bactrim or Atovaquone for at least six months post-transplant, as well as candidal infections, for which we prophylax with Nystatin or Fluconazole. Um, in addition to those infections, we also need to monitor for viral illnesses, um, in particular BK, EBV, and CMV. So BK is a polyomavirus, EBV and CMV are herpes viruses, which in the general healthy population um, most often are either completely asymptomatic or can cause um, a mild mono-like illness in the cases of CMV and EBV. Um, however, again, in the immunocompromised state, these viruses can undergo uncontrolled replication, which can cause um, graft dysfunction, um, which is known to happen in the case of uh, BK viremia, as well as with the other two viruses and in addition can cause dysfunction of the other organs and death. Um, with EBV in particular, which I'll get into in uh, one of the following slides, we also worry about post-transplant lymphoproliferative disorder. An EBV-mediated process which can present uh, with a lymphoma-type picture. So in order to monitor for these infections, we do do screening of viral PCRs at every post-op visit. Um, and as I mentioned, we also give preventative medications in the post-transplant period. In terms of antiviral management strategies, valcite or valgancyclovir has been shown to have efficacy um, in terms of preventing CMV infection and replication. 
um, and there are different strategies which are employed uh, with regards to placement of patients on Valside after transplant. So we talk about prophylactic versus preemptive strategies. Um, and these strategies take into account um, the donor and recipient CMV zero status prior to transplant, as well as the induction agent used. So we have people who get stratified into higher low risk of developing a post-transplant CMV infection. What would make you high risk is um, if you were naive to CMV prior to transplant and received a kidney transplant from a CMV positive donor, as opposed to lower risk if you were CMV positive prior to transplant or CMV negative with a CMV negative donor. In addition, having received a more intensive induction therapy with thymoglobulin as opposed to Simulect would place you at higher risk for contracting CMV disease post-transplant. So in those patients which we consider high risk, people have used a prophylactic strategy wherein they'll place the patient on valcite prophylaxis, um, usually for about six months post-transplant, although there is variation in that as well, as opposed to a preemptive strategy which focuses on um, close monitoring of viral PCRs without prophylactic medication unless the patient develops viremia. Um, and in general, studies have shown a positive impact on um, graft survival and mortality with a prophylactic approach. Um, however, the reason to potentially use a preemptive approach would be to prevent uh, development of drug resistance and also prevent drug-related side effects from valcite. Uh, similar to CMV, we also have risk of EBV, and as I mentioned, um, EBV-associated post-transplant lymphoproliferative disorder. And again, the risk of acquiring this depends on what the donor and recipient serostatus were, as well as the induction agent used. Um, in the pathogenesis of PTLD, when a patient um, is infected with EBV virus, the EBV goes into a naive B cell um, and enters what's called the lytic phase of replication. Um, and in that phase, there is generally a strong um, immune response which is generated, um, which results in cell cytotoxicity and cell death of these infected B cells. However, some of the B cells will go on to the latent phase, um, in which case they are then in an immune evasion status uh, where they aren't actively being recognized by the host immune system. Now, that latent EBV is now present in memory B cells as well as plasma cells, um, and that can at any point be reactivated um, in which case the plasma cells, which will, beco will become activated B cells again. Um, when that happens in a regular host, cytotoxic T lymphocytes will then attack those activated cells and kill the cells that contain EBV and are replicating. However, in the post-transplant immunosuppressed state, the body is not able to mount that response, resulting in uncontrolled replication of these cells, which can um, cause PTLD.
Unfortunately, the incidence of EBV-mediated PTLD is actually increasing. Overall, rates are about 1 to 1.5% of patients post-transplant will develop this. However, rates are somewhat higher in the pediatric population as compared to the adult population. And that's primarily because of the higher incidence of EBV-naive patients in the pediatric population. So as patients get older, they're more likely to have been exposed to EBV prior to transplant. So in the EBV-naive population, risks of PTLD are at about 3%, close to 3%, as compared to patients who were EBV-positive prior to transplant, where the rates are less than 1%. Um, and with the development of better um, and more potent immunosuppressive regimens, the incidence of PTLD has increased um, as we've shifted towards drugs that are better at immunosuppressing and reducing rates of rejection. So that brings us to transplant rejection, which is one of the major complications that we are always watching out for after a transplant has occurred. Now, very often, um, these are completely asymptomatic in their presentation and are typically picked up when a patient comes in with an elevated creatinine. In very severe cases, there may be graft tenderness and even signs of graft necrosis, um, although typically rejection episodes are fairly asymptomatic at the time of presentation. Despite being asymptomatic, the patient's serum creatinine may be very elevated, and they may present um, even in renal failure. Unsurprisingly, the most common causes of transplant rejection are due to noncompliance with medication. Uh, however, there are other factors which contribute to an increased risk of rejection, um, such as younger age at the time of transplant, female gender, African-American ethnicity, sensitivity prior to transplant, and certain HLA subtypes. The treatment is generally, its treatment is made primarily uh, based on biopsy, um, and in addition, uh, blood types, in particular uh, presence of donor-specific antibody, um, and the treatment is based on the type of rejection. There are two main types of rejection. Um, if you recall, the donor organ cells have a different MHC subset than the host, and when antigen-presenting cells present the foreign antigenic peptide to T cells via the T cell receptor, these cells will become activated. The IL-2 plays a critical role in initial T cell activation via binding to the T cell surface via the IL-2 receptor, and various other cytokines are involved in the immune response as well at later points. This cascade that gets activated results in an adaptive immune response, which includes macrophages, NK cells, and cytotoxic T cells, as well as the induction of humoral immunity via B cells and antibody-producing plasma cells, which can then bind to foreign antigens and result in phagocytosis and cell death. So these different aspects of the immune system will give rise to the two forms of rejection, namely T-cell-mediated and antibody-mediated rejection, which can coexist. The treatment depends on the severity of the rejection episode, primarily based on biopsy findings, as well as lab parameters. The treatment for a T-cell-mediated rejection is focused on lowering the number and functionality of the T-cells, primarily by pulse steroids, 
and in refractory cases, use of T-cell depleting agents like thymoglobulin, similar to what's used in transplant induction therapy. Whereas antibody-mediated rejection involves the use of plasmapheresis to remove circulating antibody, as well as IVIG, and in many cases, the anti-B cell agent rituximab. So in general, as Dr. Singer uh, just demonstrated, there are two major uh, syndromes associated with acute rejection. The first is a TCMR, or T-cell-mediated cellular rejection. And the second general flavor of rejection is an antibody-mediated rejection. Pathologists uh, gathered at a conference in Banff, Canada, uh, to discuss rejection. Uh, must have been exciting. And they came up with a scoring system known as the Banff score. For TCL-mediated rejections, the score goes from 1A to 3. Um, and uh, in general, um, the worse the interstitial inflammation and the worst the worse uh, the arterial involvement uh, the worse the rejection such that a BAMF 3 cellular rejection involves transmural arteritis and may even have uh, um, necrosis uh, of the uh, arterial uh, components of the of the of the kidney Antibody-mediated rejections are um, are noted by um, the the development of peritubular capillaritis, arteritis, or um, thrombotic microangiopathies, uh, or tubular injury without any cause. It's important to know that HLA is most expressed on the endothelial cell, which is why uh, the hallmark of antibody-mediated rejection uh, is inflammation at the endothelial structures like peritubular capillaries and arteries. In addition to the demonstration of vascular inflammation, um, um, there um, is usually C4D deposition. Uh, C4D is a complement protein um, which is deposited along vascular structures uh, in the presence of antibody-mediated rejections. Lastly, uh, to seal the deal for an antibody-mediated rejection, there should be serologic evidence of the development of donor-specific antibodies. So here are some examples of what you may see uh, in, on transplant histology in the setting of a, of a rejection. On the upper right, you'll note arteritis. You can see the smooth muscle cells um, uh, in the middle of the slide, and you can see intraluminal deposition of monocytic of, of mononuclear uh, inflammatory cells. On the top left, uh, the arrows demonstrate peritubular capillaries, and in, again, you can see tiny blue inflammatory cells um, uh, uh, surrounding them. And on the right, you see the same cells uh, in glomerular um, um, blood vessels. On the bottom right is a demonstration of tubulitis, where the tubules are attacked by inflammatory cells. And on the bottom left, uh, you see uh, on the left-hand portion of the slide, um, fibrinoid necrosis of, a, um, of an artery in a renal cortex. And on the right, you see linear deposition of C4D uh, along these arteries, which demonstrates a severe case of antibody-mediated rejection. 
Um, and this is, again, just to look at the epidemiology of transplant rejection from the NAPROTEX data, uh, looking at the time to first rejection from the time of transplant. So here um, they divided between living and deceased donor transplants. Um, generally speaking, living donor transplants have lower rates of rejection overall, um, in part because of um, many times better HLA matching and also decreased cold ischemia time. Um, but what you can see is that, again, um, as we've gotten further along, um, historically, outcomes are significantly better, both for living donors and deceased donors. So in the black lines in both of these graphs, you can see these are from the oldest uh, cohort, from 1987 to 1991, um, and rejection rates were um, upwards of 50% by 48 months post-transplant as compared to in the current era with current immunosuppressive regimens, rejection rates are much lower, um, just approaching about 20% at 48 months post-transplant. Obviously, uh, we haven't yet found a cure for issues such as medication noncompliance, which is why we haven't been able to completely uh, eliminate the risk of transplant rejection. Um, and finally, just to talk a little bit about chronic allograft dysfunction, uh, which is essentially the term given to uh, the wear and tear injury on a kidney transplant, and that's due to a variety of different factors. Um, there's chronic low-grade immune injury, um, which despite our current medications, uh, there is still a risk of causing a low-level chronic immune-mediated response. Um, and then as well as other patient factors, such as uncontrolled blood pressure, recurrence of the underlying disease, um, repeat episodes of rejection um, cause increased risk of long-term injury to the allograft, medication toxicity, primarily from ProGraph, as we discussed, and of course, noncompliance. So all of these are factors which go into um, the risk of graft loss over time and need for a potential retransplant. So there you have it, a basic primer, kidney transplant 101. Feel free to contact Dr. Pamela Singer with any questions you may have. Or Dr. Elliot Grotstein. Either of us would be happy to answer any questions you may have. We're reachable via email, psinger at northwell.edu. And egrotstein at uh, northwell.edu. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed.